Okay, we are back to work here to talk about the development of the young players in the Northwest Division. A lot of young players that are pretty interesting in this division, the criteria. Generally, we're going to talk about anyone with three or fewer years of experience, uh, unless it's someone who doesn't really have enough of a track record at the NBA level to get into that much. And for those players who are not rookies, we'll give them a development grade where there's enough of a sample to do so one through 10 on how they've improved or not improved over the past year. So Danny, which of these fine teams would you like to begin with? Let's start with the Minnesota Timberwolves and start with a player who is not getting a a development grade because he's a rookie. And that is Jarrett Culver. Culver was the sixth overall. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to say it's because he didn't develop. Hey, hey, let's not, no, let's not no, get no, ahead he of actually, ourselves. He, he actually did get better throughout the, oh, yeah. of the season, Absolutely. but uh, it also was uh, a very low place to start. It was. And so Culver, this was his age 20 season after his two years at Texas Tech. And some of the big picture stats for him started 35 of 63 games, nine, nine points, two assists, three rebounds in about 24 minutes a game. PR a little bit under 10, 47% true shooting on 19% usage. And part of why that that true shooting was so rough is 30% on 6.83s per possessions and as a, a note Culver shot 30% on threes his final year at Texas Tech too. He shot better than that his freshman year, but his his last year before entering the NBA, that's what he shot. Yeah, what was the ad from the line this year? Oh lord. 46%, 54 of 117. Oh, oh, I, I guess I was hoping there might be some hope there. <laughs> but I mean he was, yeah, I mean, that, he was that's 69% just in college, crazy. but that's terrible. All right, man, this this cat is killing me right now. He's he's <laughs> first first I had to he I closed the door, so I'm not gonna like disturb my wife. He's meowing to get in. Now the moment he gets in, he's meowing to get up. So I'm gonna let him out and I'm gonna ignore him for the rest of the show. But you guys you guys can get uh, a real real look at uh the behind the scenes. Oh don't tell them. these old these older cats, man, they just nothing's ever acceptable to them. So I, I think something we could we could get started on with Jared Culver, which I think you know something that you and I talked about a lot when he was when we were analyzing him as a draft prospect somebody that we were not particularly high on is the jump shot to use a couple of the synergy splits culver 0.85 points per possession on catch and shoots that's pretty bad like because you think about catch and shoots normally you get you get your feet right you can get everything clean and then an almost identical 0.86 on shots off the dribble that's actually not terrible it's not great and so i mean yeah if you were to choose one or the other i I, depending i i don't see culver's dynamic enough on ball I think that he's going to probably be more of a spot-up guy, but it is interesting that he shot about the same on those two. Admittedly, you know, not the biggest sample in the world. Yeah, and the jumper, I think to me, it still needs major surgery. He still shoots a jump shot from three, and he really kind of shoots it on the way down. Uh, You know, with Eric Paschal, the coaching staff was trying to get him to shoot more of a set shot from three. Hopefully that might help him a little bit if Culver were to do the same thing although worth noting he also shoots a set shot from the free throw line where he shoots at 46 percent so uh maybe that's not too great um but it really like the form just doesn't look good he doesn't look like a natural shooter it was something that I was very concerned with as well you mentioned his shooting record is not amazing going back to Texas Tech and now he also seems to have this mental thing at the line. I mean, this is on over 100 attempts that he's at that 46%. So it's not a fluke, you would think. Uh, you know, this isn't like Lonzo Ball where he's taking two free throws a month uh, back when he was shooting really poorly. So without the jump shot, then what else is there for him to hang his hat on? What's the state of the rest of his game? 
There were some positive indicators uh, with him as a as a pick and roll ball handler. Uh, if you look at him as a scorer in those spots per synergy, 0.78 points per possession, not terrible, but not great. And that improves when you include passes, but again, still below average. But remember, Culver's is age 20 season. He can get better there. He I think his vision is is okay. It's not amazing, and that's something I've said. We did this on a pod, actually, a Patreon mailbag recently about how that's something that's really hard to improve. Um, but I think there's something there, and also like his finishing needs improvement. But that is often something that gets better for young guards. Yeah, the, the finishing though. I, I mean, again, I think he can work towards being an average finisher, but I don't think of him as a crazy athlete. Maybe you could consider him above average and also he's really more closer to shooting guard size than a true small forward size and this is a a stat that i I thought was really indicative right so spot ups which is a synergy where basically what happens when you catch the ball with an advantage and you finish the possession most of those usually for are going to be jump shots and we know that he really struggled there uh but when he puts the ball on the floor and goes to the basket he shot 10 out of 30 on those plays. So 0.6 points per possession. That's even including on places getting fouled. 23 points on 37 possessions. So, I mean, that's a play where in theory, you've got the advantage and you're getting to the basket. You should be able to shoot a pretty good percentage on those plays and you know, to shoot that amount on layups. I mean, either A, you shouldn't be taking the shot or, or B, uh, you know, you just don't have the finishing ability. And he doesn't have a lot of craft when he finishes. I mean, if you watch some of his finishes, you know, he'll, it's true for a lot of young players where they'll just like get some really ugly blocks into the stands where you know because he was really an above average athlete for college and he's not so he's got to learn what he can get away with but he doesn't have a ton of strength right now he doesn't have a ton of craft he doesn't have a ton of touch and he doesn't have a ton of athleticism and so that's really uh it makes it very difficult for me to believe that you know part of why he was drafted was because he has some pick and roll handling ability and yeah he can pass it a little bit that's probably the best part of his pick and roll game but other than that you know doesn't he's not gonna be able to really finish at the rim and be a threat there and you know doesn't have any kind of a mid-range game i think that anyone's gonna be worried about and you know he certainly could improve but i mean there's really other than maybe the passing there is no part of his offensive game that's like even close to good enough right now i mean you know like all rookies especially ones who play as much as he did he had a couple of good games here and there uh, but it's uh it really is a struggle for him and then defensively you know it's okay right it's again i think it's our this is one where it seems like so far we got it right on the scouting report on him where i think he tries hard he's got pretty decent tools but not unbelievable tools you know i don't think he has enough size to check the biggest wings he'll play hard but he's not a defensive difference maker as a help defender either so he could be part of a a solid part of a good defense but he's not a difference maker and considering the offensive limitations uh, that really is a problem so he's reputed to be a great kid really hard worker hopefully he can get better but it has been a real struggle for him to date here. Should we start talking about uh, Josh Okogi? Yeah, let's let's go to Okogi. So he averaged nine points, four rebounds, 25 minutes a game this year, started about half of, of, of his appearances. And improvement in efficiency, 11.5 PER, 55% true shooting on just 15% usage. And the, the usage is very important here. The Another thing that we'll have, to, we'll have to linger on, even though, you know, 55% true shooting, not bad. 27% on 4.6 threes per 100 possessions is actually something uh, Seth Partnow talked about in our collaborative 
narrative piece on Minnesota is just how little shooting talent they had this year. We just brought up Culver, who shot 30% on threes, and now we have Akogi, two perimeter guys who both shot 30% or worse from long distance. Now, I would say that Okogi's shot looks a little bit better than Culver's. Culver has a, a history of being more aggressive with it, but Okogi, you don't look at him and say, man, this form is broken. And every once in a while, he would take more aggressive shots, like if the defense went under on a handoff, something like that. But obviously, the results have not remotely been there. You know, I didn't see him passing up shots quite as much this year. He still does it to some degree. Uh, but the other parts uh, of Akogi's game, uh, there's a lot really to like there. Absolutely. I mean, one of the stories of a player getting more efficient despite not being a great three-point shooter is, is improvements in shot profile all over the floor. So getting to the free throw line a ton, uh, 0.48 free throw temperatures. that means basically he's taking about half as many shots from the free throw line as he is from the field, which is, which is very good, and taking more shots in restricted area. And this is a weird thing that matters for efficiency, but it totally does. He was abysmal. Okogi was on floaters last year, 18%. Got that up to 33%. 33% still isn't amazing, but it's a ton better than 18%. And those modest improvements are exceedingly important. Yeah, absolutely. And I, the foundation of his offensive game, though, is still getting to the basket. And it, you noted here that he increased his percentage of shots in the restricted area, took away some long twos. I mean, the whole Wolves team, we've seen this, where maybe they're even pushing guys to take more threes than they're comfortable with. But they definitely have eschewed the long two much more in the uh, non-Thibodeau era. Um, you know, he's still going to have to improve as a shooter to start on a good team down the line. Like he's just, he's not quite good enough defensively in terms of like his size. It's kind of the same problem as Culver and they're really both shooting guards. Uh, you know, I like a Kogi better defensively than Culver. He'll make more plays. He's got more athleticism. He's got some nice chase down blocks on occasion. You know, not like a crazy shark, but 1.6 steals per 36 minutes is pretty good. And he's really, you know, definitely in probably the top 15% of athletes at the shooting guard position, maybe even uh, above that. I uh, like to get into the passing lanes a little bit defensively. And his free throw rate is enormous. 48% free throw rate league average is uh, in the mid-20s for that. And he's got a nice pump fake game that he can get to uh, around the basket as well, where he can draw fouls. Uh, and he's got that strong body. So when he turns the corner, a, a lot of times there's no help, uh, no choice but to follow him. It's pretty much just a strong right-hand drive is all he's doing getting to the basket or uh, as a cutter where I thought he was very effective uh, as well. Uh, a lot of what they would do is just bring him out of the left corner so he could get a handoff going to his right. And of course they would go under on that because he's probably not really a huge threat to take the jumper, but just be he's fast enough and powerful enough going to that right hand that even if they went under, sometimes they couldn't beat him to the spot on that play. Um, his passing is not particularly impressive <laughs> no. at this point. He has very few assists other than basic stuff. Well, and it, it's it's hard with the Kogi because he has a lot of the building blocks for this low usage, capable defender player. But you have to hit every mark in order to be a, to be a, a starter. And him being a little bit small for a defensive first perimeter guy, because you want that player to be able to at least passively check the bigger wings, because that that's kind of the whole point. And I, I think there's a distinct chance that he gets there. And something I like about Okogi is that he, I think he kind of understands how to, how that's going to happen. And I, especially like the cutting as you brought up. 
and but he has to actually do it and so like if i were to guess right now with him i would say it's more likely than not that he ends up not being a starter i'm not foreclosing it but the threshold even with the scarcity of capable wings like shooting guards and small forwards the threshold for that on a good team is incredibly high and it takes I don't I just don't think he's going to get there though there's still value in being a capable rotation player who can slot in more when you need him yeah what would you give him for uh, a development rating I'm going to give him a six I, I mean I I think that getting the kind of the interior game better improving improving the free throw rate those are all important building blocks you'd love for the shot to be better and I think he I think he did a, a little bit modest improvement defensively nothing too crazy but this Timberwolves team was such a madhouse defensively that it's kind of hard to hard to assess sometimes some a couple of these players yeah in the five six range is where I would be as well I mean really didn't take much of a step forward he looks a little more comfortable taking the three maybe passing up fewer shots although the results in terms of percentage haven't been there but yeah I think incremental steps forward in the other parts of his game uh Jordan McLaughlin out of USC uh, on a two-way played 590 minutes but uh was the primary backup point guard with the departure of Jeff Teague and uh I'm really rooting for him just so that you can reference the McLaughlin group uh, when talking about Minnesota's second unit. Yeah, I can't remember who I stole that from, but it's fan or not who I who I you know adopted. Uh, maybe was it John McLaughlin? Probably. Um, but it's <laughs> but it's the but I do uh, I I think that it's it's a it's a cool path. I mean, so McLaughlin played four years at Southern Cal, gets into the NBA at 23. He's actually already turned 24. Yeah, and he, he spent last year with the Long Island Nets. In the with team. the Long Island Nets comes in, and then when the when the Wolves, I, I mean, he's been he was on a two way, but when when they gets more reliable playing time, when they move Jeff Teague in that super weird deal we've discussed many times, and really thrives. And 16.3 per, 59% true shooting on about 16 usage, 31 assist percentage makes. 38% of his threes, totally reasonable volume, which is exceedingly unusual on this year on this Minnesota team. But when you look at kind of like some of the profile stuff, didn't do, you know, didn't do a ton of pick and roll, but the numbers on it were good, you know, uh, 0.95 at points per possession as a as a scorer that's good and then a little bit higher than that if you include passes which is which is totally fine as well and you know playing as a backup with and against backups there are certainly considerations like you did he was very efficient but you don't want to say oh that means he's going to be efficient as a starter but it's it's nice to be able to find somebody like that and then the crazy thing in some ways but given the unusual structure of the season it kind of makes some sense is that McLaughlin finished the season on a two-way too so that means considering this limited cap year and everything else I don't know if he's on a one-year or two-year two-way contract but it should be very easy for the Timberwolves to retain it yes uh, absolutely so um a a few other notes that I had I mean 38 percent on six threes per hundred possession that's fewer than he took in the G League um but he didn't quit hit at height wow didn't hit at quite that percentage in the g league he's down in the 35 percent range for his two seasons there but i thought he looked pretty aggressive with the shot you know i don't know if he's going to be a high 30s guy but i think he shoots it well enough that he can punish the defense if they totally go under uh i thought he was very judicious in his attacks with only that 16 percent usage but i really like him as a driver uh in particular he's got a lot of burst and he's a, a very selective driver he a lot of times if they're running a play that uh, where he's just kind of starting things off to hand it off to somebody else who'll catch the defense napping and blow by him for a layup like he's got these like cheeky little attacks that, that the defense doesn't see coming when, when they kind of relax and he's quick enough to take advantage of those openings uh 
you know, I didn't see a ton of impressive passes for him. He doesn't have great size. He's in the six foot or so range. Um, you know, he's not hitting like great passes to shooters on the weak side, but every once in a while he'll uncork like a really sweet, no look. Um, and I think he's got above average athleticism for a backup point guard. So I'm, uh, you know, I, I think the shooting, he might be a little bit over his head right now, but I was impressed with him. I thought he looked like he could very well be a solid backup point guard in this league. I'm not saying their games are similar, but I see some parallels between McLaughlin and somebody else we'll talk about later in this, Monte Morris, where capable backup point guard you found off the basically off the scrap heap kudos that getting that player cost controlled maybe they're never going to become a starter no no harm no foul there and yeah, I think McLaughlin's a really good story for Minnesota. And you think about, I mean, the I, I emphasize the 48 good minutes of point guard all the time. And if he can play 15 capable minutes of point guard for Minnesota, that makes a world of difference. Uh, let's go to Naz Reed, a rookie out of LSU, played about 500 minutes in his rookie season, age 20 and averaged nine points, four rebounds, and about 17 minutes per game. And one of the things that I found interesting and had to dig into a little bit with Reed was 51% true shooting for a big man on 24% usage. Like, that is a very unusual combination. And there there are some explanations for that. Yeah, absolutely. It takes a lot of threes. Uh, really, the stretch big is uh, the appeal there for sure. Um, you know, he shot about 33% and, but was very aggressive. And there's, he was a lot of when he was playing was when Carl Anthony Towns was out. And so I think they tried to, I mean, obviously he's not going to be Carl Anthony Towns, but they tried to plug him into that role a little bit in terms of being able to space the floor. And we've talked about the shooting limitations of their wings in particular, once Covington was gone. And so having someone who could stretch the floor, uh, even nominally was good. You know, interesting dichotomy that when he was spotting up, not really catching it on the move as much, he shot extremely well on threes. But on pick and pop jumpers, he's only ten out of thirty-eight, and that's a little. Those pick and pops are a little bit tougher. Um, some, sometimes that can just be noise, but it, to just set the screen and then be moving away from the ball handler and have to catch a, on the move, set and fire. Those are more difficult shots, and he struggled to make those. Um, also, a, a concern for him though is just a general lack of athleticism that showed up in his finishing around the rim yeah i mean just around 50 percent there which you you hope that a big man even if he spends time on the perimeter can do better than that and you also see some of that those limitations on defense as well and so reed i don't want to see where he goes i like that he plays hard um but it i do have trouble seeing exactly where it goes and i think that's an interesting juxtaposition with naz reed who they played a bunch during the absence of carl anthony towns well, well a couple more things on reed here sure. before you transition so you know defensively again he's not like a great athlete he struggles to finish around the rim he's kind of a 4.5 in some ways that doesn't matter as much on offense because he, he can shoot it and and so he's got some versatility there um you know was not really effective as a role man but he did average actually 1.4 steals and 1.6 blocks per 36 minutes so he does make some plays on occasion it's just like you know 47 percent from two as a, a big is just a, that's not going to cut it so i'm you know i think he's probably more of a third center uh change of pace type of guy if he could get more athletic uh and make more of an impact on defense and get his shot up into the high 30s from three then you know maybe he's a a backup center but you know he wasn't someone who was reputed i mean wasn't he? he was undrafted right so uh or he might have been like late in the second round he was a second rounder i believe no you were right he was undrafted and 
So for that to have provided somewhat competent play, uh, you know, I think he's probably more of a third center, but worth keeping around, especially for a potential change of pace if you need to space the floor, and particularly on this team uh, that uh, they've got all these wings who can't shoot, so they need a center who can't. But yeah, you're going to... Uh, point to uh, Amari Spellman in some ways a, a similar player a similar player who did not play on the Minnesota Timberwolves so they acquired him in the D'Angelo Russell Andrew Wiggins trade and so but Spellman played all of his minutes while on Golden State on that in that loss season uh eight points 4.5 rebounds in about 18 minutes a game and Spellman, a more reliable three-point shooter, though not at the volume, 39% on 4.53 per possession. So the per 100 possessions, about half of what Nas Reed shot. But Spellman, um, 55% true shooting on 19 usage, playing in a in a very different system. And Spellman, I think it's you're right. The idea behind him is in a way similar to Nas Reed, where it's like you know change of pace can space the floor a little bit hopefully his defensive instincts get better not a great athlete I like Reed a lot better of course in the physical the physical realm though Spellman did lose did lose that weight during his work oh, I, I, I just I disagree with you actually I think I like uh I think I like Spellman a little bit better uh particularly as a, as a rim protector uh yeah, now that he's as lost, a, his timing know, is better 70 I, I think. pounds yeah um yeah, and I think Spellman is a, a, a. I like him a little bit better as a shooter than Reed as well. I, I, you know, I thought Spellman that there might be a place for him. Um, you know, particularly once he started playing the five a little bit. I mean, this Warriors team was so difficult to figure it out, but he really struggled to finish early in the year, and I think he got better at that. The Warriors coaches worked with him on that a lot, and of course, he lost the the weight, but he just, you know, he used to really have to like gather himself underneath and he would end up getting blocked as the defense recovered he found ways to keep the ball above his head shoot it quickly on his finishing so i was uh I think there still could be something there with Spellman, and particularly given the way that he shot the the three pointer. So, uh, and I think in the Wolves system, I mean, they didn't really seem to have a ton of interest in him since they didn't even bring him to the big team. And uh, but you know, I think he could actually have an impact that the Warriors, you know, are just not a team that emphasizes the three pointer very much, uh, unless you're Steph Curry or Clay Thompson. And so, uh, I, I'm still a believer in Spellman. I'm, so I'm, I. Uh, I think he can be a rotation player. I'm less of a believer in Jacob Evans, another player. Uh, well, we got we got to give him a development rating. Uh, I mean, I would give Spellman probably an eight or a nine just because he had basically eaten himself out of the league the yeah, last time we I, checked I agree. in on him. I agree. So to actually have any kind of a future at all, um, you know, seems reasonable. Um, yeah, Jacob Evans. Uh, I mean, I don't really even want to spend that much time. All, on all, all I want to say is this: he had a 5.5 PER on 44% true shooting, and both of those are improvements off of his rookie year. Yeah, he at least showed a little bit more ability to shoot the three-pointer where he yeah. just wouldn't and couldn't shoot it as a rookie. But he also doesn't really do much else. He struggled mightily inside the arc 38 percent of the restricted area and rare uh, that he would get there he, he would try to kind of maneuver around you know the idea was like he's a big guard maybe he could get to a mid-ranger that didn't really work and then also uh, on defense the idea was he was going to be a big time impact there and he just wasn't a good enough athlete for that to be the case so uh i mean i think he uh the fact that the warriors picked up his third year option was probably a mistake and uh i would very much surprise me if he takes up a roster spot in minnesota next year uh, let's jump to Jalen Noel, the player who I flipped with Naz Reed. Noel was the one who was drafted. He was the 43rd overall pick in 2019 and played, but ended up playing more of his minutes for the Iowa Wolves instead of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Yeah, and I thought uh, Noel, you know, didn't get a chance to look at his defense that much, but I think he's got, you know, pretty decent 
solid athleticism for a shooting guard uh just solid scoring instincts overall you know if the defense goes under he's willing to take a a deep three it's kind of more of a set shot it's not the quickest release in the world but it it looks like pretty good form uh you know he can work uh, in pick and roll as well particularly at the g league level he was very effective in transition getting the basket and he shot it at 38 or 37% sorry from 3 looked very comfortable taking those shots um you know overall pretty efficient in the G League now is that going to translate is he someone where you're going to put the ball in his hands to make plays at the NBA level you know that's probably not the case so he would need to find a, a way to play more of a role and so I, I would like to see more of him at the NBA level uh, particularly defensively but you know I, I didn't think like as I watched him like oh no this guy's going nowhere like I, I thought he's got a, a a chance to do something potentially and this uh it was only his age 20 season and then uh Jared Vanderbilt just haven't seen any of them he played 46 minutes at the nba level this year denver where he spent most of the season does not have a g league team so uh we talked about him after summer league and little to update our impressions there let's move to the oklahoma city thunder their star prospect is the player one of the players they acquired in the paul george trade with the clippers last summer shea gilgis alexander Age 21 season, averaged 19 points, 6 rebounds, 3.3 assists, and 35 minutes a game. Uh, PER jumped from 13.4 to 17.8, 57% true shooting on 24 usage. His assist rate was down a little bit compared to his Clippers season. And uh, Shea, 35% on 4.93s per hundred possessions. Frequency up a little bit, percentage down a little. But an important caveat there, which I think is key for thinking about Shea moving forward, when he was a Clipper, almost all of his threes were assisted. 90% of them were. And then went a lot more self-created in Oklahoma City, so that 90% became 56%. So the percentage dropping a little bit isn't that bad because that's what happens when you go from assisted threes to self-created threes. Absolutely. And I thought that was the most impressive thing. That was my biggest concern uh, for Shea was that he wouldn't be a good enough three-point shooter. And he still kind of shoots the set shot, but he's improved the versatility of his jump shot immensely uh you know he still uh, has a part of his bread and butter is using his size to get into spots in the mid-range and rise up um you know he's also got that great scoop game around the rim uh, but yeah i mean to me the shooting getting so much better was the the biggest thing uh, that i was excited about got to the foul line a lot more uh, as well again i think a lot of that was just that he was given the ball a lot more it's really kind of the number two option a lot of times in okc certainly no worse than number three but that's only if he's playing with schroeder and chris paul probably um what else you got to say about him I, I really like Shea, but part of why I like him is that I think he fits seamlessly, you know, with where his game is going as a, you know, a number two, number three player, as you were getting into. And he's 21. You don't want to, for, there's certainly a chance that he can grow beyond that. But I think you want to see more dynamism, a guy with the ball in his hands or undeniable shooting or something else. And he's, you know, a, a good defender, but not an amazing defender. He's a good ball handler, but not an amazing one. And so that is totally fine. Like there is, there's no shame in that, but that's also, like leads to my question of scalability so this year's OKC team I think why they defied expectations was they got a lot more from their veterans than many anticipated that's why I was banging the drum on their over was Chris Paul Danilo Gallinari Steven Adams like they had a lot of good players and so that allowed Shea to slot in in an appropriate place and I think that if 
Sam Presti decides to pivot and, you know, move some of those veterans or in the case of Gallo, let him go, that that could actually work out in the long term for two reasons. One, I think that Shea, at this point in his career, maybe moving forward, just isn't the guy to be the best player offensively or defensively on a good team. And what that means yeah. is... And I don't know that he'll ever be. And, yeah. that's, and that's just fine. Totally I mean, I think fine. he can be, you know, play at close to an all-star level. Um, and I'd also like to see what he does as like the main uh, point guard option. Too. Right. And and that's something you're not comparing apples to apples with the Thunder due to how Billy Donovan ran the rotations. Shea had a positive offensive PIPM and positive R- offensive RPM. But part of that is kind of like how you conflate these things. So... When Shea and Chris Paul played together, the Thunder had a 119-4 offensive rating. Fabulous. You know, that, that's that's a really good number. But when Shea played without Chris Paul, that number dropped to 104-5, and that is not strong. Those lineups, you know, as I said, not apples to apples. The most common one there was Schroeder, Shea, Hamadou Diallo, Darius Baisley, and Mike Muscala. Not exactly a murderer's row, but... You know, you'd like to see Shea be able to elevate some of those non-Chris Paul units, and this is something we harped on with Schroeder's Sixth Man of the Year case, is that Paul is an anomaly in that he makes everybody's lives so much easier on both ends of the floor. And so if, if Shea has to do a lot more, I don't know how well he'll do with that. But he's tw- he's 21, you know, next year will be his age 22 season, that, that can work out just fine. Well, and I think also uh, what you have to say about him is, I would give him an eight or a nine in terms of his development. Yes. I think I was I think I was lower on him than many uh, after that Clippers year and you know Doc Rivers as this is want is just talking guys up uh, like crazy, but uh, and did that with Shea and oh I can't believe we had to lose him and blah blah. But no, I mean he really took major steps forward this year and he had a good playoffs last year as well. So uh, again, it, that is no shame in saying all right we don't think this guy is a future superstar i think he's going to be a very very good player in the nba for a long time and you know could make a a couple of all-star teams you know maybe i'd see him more as about the level of where like a mike conley has been but i I think he's on track to potentially do that and uh my hope is we'll get to see him as the main guy pretty soon offensively um let's turn to uh terrence ferguson uh, this section that we're about to do will probably eclipse the actual time of possession that he had in all games uh, during the 2019-20 season. I, I went down one of the deeper rabbit holes that I've gone down in a long time with Terrence Ferguson. and I, I'm so glad you did this, by the way. Like, it, we were texting about this beforehand, and I was like, oh, yes, I hope he brings this up in the pod. Uh, oh, I, I have to. So, I mean... I'll, I'll I'll start with kind of the the amazing one. So there were 227 players that played over a thousand minutes before the hiatus. Only two of them had fewer than a thousand touches. I believe that's front court touches. It's the, I'm using NBA.com's tracking data. So only two out of 227 had fewer than a thousand. Terrence Ferguson had 747. So that's an amazing part. He basically never touches the ball, but he also had the second lowest seconds per touch ahead of only Maxi Kleba, which is also amazing. Get that some other point. So basically what that means is Terrence Ferguson had the ball in his hands less than half as much as almost every single other player in the NBA who played over a thousand minutes. And the only exception actually was Matisse Thibel, but there there's some explanation there. But so basically what that means is Terrence Ferguson never had the ball in his hands. He's like, it's, it's truly incredible. And I mean, you see that in a bunch of different things. One of them being his usage rate was nine, not, not like nine, something nine, yeah, and this is going to come up with a lot of these players. And 
it was easy to blame russell westbrook for this back when he was here and maybe it's easy to blame chris paul for this because he he is also a ball dominant player and then you've got Schroeder and gilgis alexander as well and it doesn't necessarily make sense to take the ball out of their hands but i really ferguson darius baisley lou dort Hamadou Diallo, and they're really in this OKC role player purgatory that has really been the case since going back to you know Tabo Cephalosha and then it was not that Tabo needed more touches either but then you know there were players like for example Victor Oladipo and, and Demontis Sabonis who could do a lot more and just didn't get the chance I'm not saying that Terrence Ferguson does that but it's just it seems like they're always looking for these support guys and I mean they just get no chance to do anything at all and they're just they don't get a lot of touches they don't really seem like they get a chance to even squeeze the orange even when they're not a part of the main action you know Phil Jackson would always talk about like hey you want to keep guys involved by at least letting them touch the ball that was one of the principles of the triangle offense and a lot of teams move the ball a lot more uh, but it really seems like OKC a lot of these guys it's just and then as you watch the film of them too it's like all right they're just standing in the corner you know and uh maybe the ball will come to them if they're open and they'll shoot it otherwise uh you don't really do anything else so ferguson i mean i I think he's definitely a quality defender you know too thin to guard some of the better guys but he can really get into guys defensively extremely quick feet pretty long arms one of the better guys in the league at getting skinny around screens um since he's part of that is because uh he's skinny even when he's not going around screens and offensively though the hope was that he could be like a jr smith type of shooter and that's really what kind of hasn't developed and you know maybe that's something where he could be better at that but this is what year three for him now and he's shooting 30 percent from three and not getting many reps so it's it's probably got to believe at this point that he's not just like the level of shooter that you hoped he could be even though he has been exactly what you would hope he could be defensively and then you know he doesn't dribble he'll make a cut along the baseline for an alley-oop every once in a while he's still like a, a real skywalker but you know not really able to get into position to finish unless he's just passed the ball right at the basket yeah let's jump to the new- uh, what, what's uh give me give him a development rating i'll go four i mean he i thought he was already pretty good defensively so his improvement there and then i i don't blame yeah. I don't blame Ferguson for the limited offensive growth, but it also didn't happen. So, I mean, I'm not going to give him credit. Yeah, I'd probably have to go with a three. I mean, he seems like pretty much the same guy to me, which is not supposed to happen when you're 21. So let's go to Darius Baisley, who came in this is age 19 season after basically taking that that gap year where he was an intern at New Balance. And... 4.5 points, 3.7 rebounds in 17 minutes a game. Actually started eight before the hiatus. 8.1 PER, 48% true shooting on 14 usage. So meaningfully higher usage than Ferguson. Um, But an identical 30% on from three on fewer attempts per possessions, 5.4 for him. And I, you know, there are a lot of things that I'm not criticizing, criticizing the the models for this, but I did find it fascinating that of all people, Darius Baisley had the single most negative offensive PIPM in the entire NBA and the fourth lowest offensive RPM ahead of a a few other guys that are not exactly the most offensively creative in the league. And so I I don't think of, I think of that more as a kind of like a quirk of the on-off, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like Baisley was setting the world on fire and it's just totally an anomaly. 
No, I I think it's not a surprise. Now, granted, those Thunder bench units really struggled, and Danilo Gallinari, who he was replacing a lot of times, is really good. So that's going to make those numbers look bad. But I mean, he really really struggled uh, offensively. And uh, if if you just look at the his the role that he is in, he's got more than seventy percent of his possessions occurring as either spot ups. That's over fifty percent, and then transition. So if those are just purely dependent ways that you're getting your shots at 48 percent true shooting is not acceptable uh in particular on spot ups he's being left wide open and he's not able to actually make the defense pay there's uh, the struggles shooting the spot up jumpers and then also when he goes to the basket he's he'll got an okay skill level he'll try and drive but he doesn't have the athleticism or the strength to really go hard all the way to the basket off of closeouts. So the numbers are pretty ugly when he drove off of closeouts as well, the uh, 0.86 points per possession. And, you know, a lot of times you'd see him have to kind of slow down, pump fake, step through. You know, he's not able to just go right hard to the backboard and lay it in or try and dunk it. And, and now he does have a body type where he's pretty thin he didn't play last year you know he i think he could potentially get a lot more athletic he has that type of a body and get a lot stronger um you know he when you see him out there like he looks like legit power forward size like he you see him out there it's like oh that guy's pretty big when you look at him um but he's not at the point where he's really able to play big yet um does have a pretty nice right hand you know i, I think he's, he's worked on that a little bit i would like to see more offensive rebounding from him you know and if he gets more athletic and, and starts to learn how to play harder again you know doesn't have uh, the experience having played in college i mean that's part of that but i'm uh you know I, again it's uh you know this is his age 19 season but there's really he was not close to ready for a rotation role on a good team and, and it showed and paralleling josh Akogi, if basely can take incremental steps from floater range those are t- basically one-fifth of his shots and he made 22 percent. that would be a, a, i mean yeah. you ideally want that rate to go down but i mean you want the percentage yeah. to go up i too. mean that, that's what i was talking about right like he'll yeah. drive to the basket and he just has to kind of slow down he's not he can't go aggressively he can't go get fouled he just doesn't have that type of aggression and athleticism so like he's you're right he shouldn't be taking that many floaters yeah so let's move to the the current leader in the low usage extra guy oklahoma city mold uh lou dort who was spent most of the year on a two-way and then got converted so that he can play in the orlando bubble this is his age 20 season 6.2 points and two rebounds in 22 minutes per game started 21 of the 29 games he played in for the thunder um 7.3 PER, 52% use, 52% true shooting on 13 usage, not 52 usage. That wouldn't be him. Um, and again, it wouldn't be a thunder. It wouldn't be a thunder wing without 30% shooting on 5.6 threes per hundred possession. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, I don't think his shot looks broken, but Agreed. he's never had a reputation as a shooter. You know that that is. I think certainly indicative of his true ability level. Uh, you know, I didn't see him passing up too many shots, at, at least. You know, it's an acceptable attempt rate. Um, what really gives him an appeal is his ability as a driver, particularly those hard drives to his right hand. I mean, he's probably 6'4", maybe about 220, and uh, he's got some pretty good explosion as well. He's not a nuclear athlete, but he's a good athlete. Um, and once he gets the shoulder by a guy, he can really explode to the rim guys really just bounce off of him um uh, which is uh, impressive it also like a great percentage finishing cuts uh, around the rim can get up for some alley-oops if needed 
he was still playing you know the terrence ferguson role he and ferguson alternated as a starting at the three for this team dort probably has a little more ability to guard threes because of his strength when he's out in space he can look a little bit slow against quicker players um also doesn't really seem to have much game other than just going really hard to the rim or shooting the three you know he had some like he take some floaters every once in a while that were just like really hopeless misses just you know only drawing glass um so i, I think uh, again there's uh, certainly worthy of converting him uh, to a, a team-friendly deal guaranteeing him some money for next year he is not an nba quality starter as an offensive player right now particularly as since they be nice if they could have someone to shoot threes but uh they don't really have any threes on this team he's not going to finish games that's going to be schroeder gilgis alexander and chris paul all all together but i mean i can understand why they settled on him as the best uh, of these options uh, uh although obviously hamadou diallo who we're going to talk about in a second here is another name in that mix well one other thing i want to mention with dort is that we've seen okay. we've seen stronger smaller guys do well defensively in oklahoma city some of that was under scott brooks with the waiters but i mean i it doesn't surprise no, me no no it was, it was donovan oh, by then oh yeah i guess it was yeah and so I, it doesn't uh it, scott brooks was the first year when they traded for him at mid-season yes Yes, that's that's the year I was thinking of in my brain. But um, I I think that Dort can fit in. He can fit into some of that model, and especially when you're playing him with Chris Paul, who can defend all over. I think it can work well. And and he's not going to do great on water bug type guys, but sometimes stronger players can defend above their position. You know, like they can defend guys who are a little bit taller and get into their bodies. And I think Dort can do that well. Absolutely, um, Diallo definitely a dunk contest level of athlete and. The shooting, though... And a dunk contest level of shooter? <laughs> oh, man. Hey, Michael Jordan was in the dunk contest. He, he turned into a pretty good shooter. Uh, also set the all-time low uh, for the three-point contest ever when he, when he did that after uh, after he did the, the dunk contest. But, yeah, I mean, Diallo, I think we kind of know the story with him. He struggled with some injuries this year as well, um, only playing 38 games. And that's kind of what allowed... Uh, Dort to get a, a bit of a foothold, but uh, what are some of the stats uh, on him offensively? 8.4 PER, 49% true shooting on 17 usage, which is actually the highest of all these players that we've talked about. Oh yeah, no, that is that is like just a massive gunner. Yeah. Uh, but I, I will say this actually, I think he, he'll he try to like get to some pull-up mid-rangers every once in a while, and he probably shouldn't do that. No, probably shouldn't, but they they might go better than his three-pointers. This year, Diallo shot 20% on 2.43s per 100 possessions, and both via... T- well, that, yeah, 2.4 per 100 possessions, that's nothing. nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's like you just... I mean, and I think, you know, they had him in the dunker spot a lot. I mean, that's just that's just like... I'm, I'm guessing you're probably being left open. Yeah, that's like you're a center who reluctantly trudges out there sometimes after setting a high screen. Like, that's the level of frequency for Hamadou Diallo three-point attempts. Um, yeah, absolutely. Fortunately, though, Diallo up to 67% in the restricted area, and those are about half of his shots. But he also only made 22% of floaters, so that oh, the overall offensive profile is, is untenable. There's going to have to be a lot of growth there. And also, Diallo, while he is a wonderful athlete, he hasn't brought either the mental part or just kind of all of the defensive things together to be a let's call it a value add on that end of the floor just yet 
Yeah, you know, I think he, he makes the effort plays with chase down blocks, uh, but again, he doesn't quite have the size to guard the biggest wings. And he's also kind of foul prone uh, as well as an ISO defender. Like some of the plays I watched, uh, he was guarding DeMar DeRozan and like he went for the DeRozan about to take a fadeaway 18 footer and he jumps at it or he, he got caught on the uh when DeRozan did the harden up through his arm for another one so he's definitely still too foul prone as well um you know there's uh he's been around forever as a prospect and you know has played team usa and then uh, and ended up getting drafted in the second round but i mean just the the total lack of even willingness to take three-pointers and the lack of confidence there i mean that to me tells you even more than the 20 percent does even though i've told the story before um now that now that the other person involved is much more known i think it's fun Hamid diallo tried the single my single favorite miss dunk i've ever seen in person when he in adidas nations he tried to dunk on zion and I honestly thought like the entire gym was going to implode because th- those two guys bouncing off of each other was was really incredible. You didn't get it in. I don't. I, I can't remember if they called a foul. I think they did. But that's the kind of level of, of athlete that Diallo was not afraid at all. Uh, I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time on Deontay Burton or Isaiah Roby. Um, Roby, remember, was a was a second round draft pick of the Dallas Mavericks and then came over to the Thunder in a trade. And then Burton, I, I mean, this is his age twenty six season. I feel like players who are that old, they kind you kind of need a reason to include them in these. Michael Porter Jr. I don't have a ton to say about him just because we've talked about him so much at this point in fact you know when i had morris on uh, back in april you probably t- when you had morris on too on, on real gym radio um but uh, so i don't think we need to spend that much time on that. I mean, you can go back and listen to that episode from april if you want to hear our thoughts uh, on michael porter um but uh, i mean he's definitely a wonderful shooter and uh from the outside i'd like to see him take more threes uh, uh instead of uh, as many long twos you know that's not quite the ethos uh, in denver and uh, of course, you know, it has uh, some defensive foibles, some rookie foibles. It, it had long periods where he, he would get benched by Mike Maloney. Has a, a lot of talent uh, as a potential scorer, uh, but you know where he fits in outside of that uh, on a good team uh, with some of his supporting skills uh, that's a, a little bit of a question definitely still has a lot of potential i was way higher on him at the time he was drafted than a lot of people i think now i'm a little bit lower than the consensus you know i don't see him as a future super duper star just due to the fact that he's so limited right now to scoring maybe he can uh, make some more plays uh, as a rim protector that could improve that but uh, and you know he's just he's got to learn overall to just play harder he's missed you know basically two straight years and wasn't known for how hard he played before that and was one of the top ranked players in his class so still i mean i think he's made strides in terms of his attitude this year to earn some time but he still has a long way to go in terms of that adjustment um can't really give him a development grade since he didn't play it all last year though yeah uh, one other no- one thing i want to mention uh, uh and i talked about this a little bit 24% defensive rebounding. Something worth keeping an eye on, especially if he plays more with Jokic either in the bubble or next season. Yeah, he'll get on the offensive glass uh, as well. The defensive metrics, on-off metrics, really hated him, but part of that is because he's replacing Paul Millsap, who has, has always been a stud in those. 
Uh, Monte Morris, pretty much a known quantity uh, at this point. Uh, you know, solid backup point guard option. Maybe took a little bit of a step back in terms of uh, efficiency. Just didn't shoot it as well from three. That may have been a, a little bit unsustainable uh, well, for and, him. And, and uh, in some ways, more importantly, for mid-range, he was a 52% mid-range shooter using cleaning the glasses filters in that the breakout year 18-19. That 52% dropped to 41%. And that makes him look like a much more normal offensive player. But again, the uh, Denver's offense was pretty stable with him on the floor both this year and last. One quirk that I hadn't really pieced together. So Denver, for those who remember it, in the Jokic situation, they had a so basically they had a team option on what was his fourth season. So they could decline that to make him a restricted free agent, which Denver did, and then gave him the big payday. Obviously, far more important to do in Jokic's situation. But because Morris was on a two-way before he started his contract, he has a third-year non-guarantee for next season, which no-brainer you pick it up. But the downside of that is that means that after next year, Monte Morris is going to be an unrestricted free agent. And that just adds a little bit of volatility. It would have been nice to have match rights on him or be able to squeeze him in this market. So not not a huge mistake, but something I wanted to mention because of us. Yeah, so honestly, I watched plenty of Nuggets this year, and I thought he looked like just about the exact same guy. And, you know, for a guy who exceeded expectations, really came out of nowhere to be a solid backup point guard option last year, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. He's not a high ceiling player. I think these are the type of players you can have success with at backup point guard who maybe don't have a, a lot of ceiling. But part of the appeal is that they've really played a lot in college. They figured things out. He's always in the among the leaders in assist to turnover ratio. And so I think he was, I wouldn't, I'd give him a development rating of maybe like a three or a four, but I wasn't like expecting him to develop that yeah, much more. He just doesn't necessarily have that kind of profile. In, in many ways, that's more praise of what he was last year than criticism that he didn't get better. Precisely. Uh, PJ Dozier recently was elevated to the big club in a conversion from a two-way. Only 234 minutes. Again, we didn't see him at all at the G League level because they don't have a G League team. Uh, he's a big guard, you know, 6'5", kind of wiry. I don't didn't see him as particularly strong or athletic, and this was his age 23 season as well. He's kind of vulnerable if he's going to play some point guard to being pressured up. Um, he is comfortable getting into the mid-range and rising up for the J over smaller players. He doesn't have a particularly quick release from three. You know, he's kind of, there's a little bit of an appeal just because he has kind of point guard skills at 6'5 or so. But it's it was hard for me to point to, as I watched the film and looking at the numbers, like what his big standout skill is other than just being 6'5 and he can dribble. Um, so... I think probably his best hope is improving his shooting to where it's a plus. I didn't dive into his defense that much, but you know he's not really a, uh, an above average athlete. I wouldn't expect it to be you know anything special. So uh, you know six five guys you can dribble. There's there's always some appeal there, but I wasn't wowed by his prospects. I mean maybe he can get into being you know a don't kill you backup point guard who has enough size uh, defensively to help you out a, a little bit. Uh, but I. I not really like excited by him in, in any way to be honest let's jump to the portland trailblazers unfortunately their highest profile young player zach collins only played 82 minutes pre-hiatus due to injury so we're not really going to talk about him instead we can start with anthony simons simons was the 24th pick back in 2018 making this his second year still super young simons age 20 season and he was uh, th th again it's, this isn't everything he is maybe the most hated player by the on-off metrics and I, I it was to the point where i kind of found it amusing he was 
dead last in PIPM, negative 5.34, more than one point behind everyone else. And he was third lowest in RPM, ahead of only Ed Davis and Darius Garland. And there are some things to like with Simons, but it is also, I, I run into the idea of just kind of like, well, what is he on a good team? And what I've kind of settled with that is, you know, like kind of like a, a second unit score microwave type guy. And he could get better. He's only 20 years old, but it is it is a little bit like I know there are people who are tantalized by his potential. I'm not as tantalized. Yeah, the appeal there is his work as a, a pick and roll ball handler. Off the ball, he actually was not as efficient, but on ball, pretty good. I mean, he's uh, a point per possession on jumpers off the dribble. Many of those uh, were from three, and that's a 94 possession. So he had plenty of reps uh, in pick and roll. And then when he did get to the basket, which wasn't that often, he was able to finish efficiently at least out of the pick and roll some of the numbers though as an off-ball guy not as impressive um in isolation again very good numbers the self-created stuff is pretty good uh and i still think he has a, a very nice looking jump shot just needs to learn to play better with others uh but you do see what the appeal is for him just to, as a score as a distributor though you know, even though he is playing in a semi combo guard role especially if he's playing with the mccollum which he did a lot of the time he played almost all of his minutes were with either mccollum or lillard uh, as they w- went back to that stagger this year uh, as a distributor though he, he leaves a lot to be desired right so simon's his he assisted on less than 10 percent of teammate baskets when he was on the floor 3.2 assists per 100 possessions and so if you think about what even on a second unit, what a, somebody with the ball in their hands can do, part of it is create good shots for themselves. And Simons is more impressive at that than you would think with somebody with 51% true shooting. But it, you, you can't, especially because second unit guys often need to be set up a little bit more because if they could do it themselves, they'd be starters. And that is a potential, a potential challenge for Simons. Also, I mean, limited limited defensively, he's super skinny still, and not a defensive playmaker, super low steal rate, low block rate. So he he can become an interesting player. There are things that I like, as you said, the self-created, the self-created numbers, and just when you watch him a little bit, you what's why you can see him get by a guy, you can see can see him get to something. But the I the the idea uh, that I brought and this was a Portland player at a very different position but the challenge with Simons might be something like Jermaine O'Neal and what I mean by that is it takes you the entire rookie scale contract to figure out what the hell he is and then you have to figure out whether or not you're going to pay him and maybe somebody else will yeah the the reason to be excited about him is his ability to shoot the jump shot off the dribble yes and and that is a really valuable skill particularly from three that's something that he's really you know that's where he could have a, a lot of potential as a score, particularly even uh, with some deep range. But then defensively, too, the the numbers were pretty bad. Obviously, he's on a, an atrocious defensive team. A lot of times, he's you know playing with bigs who are just not NBA quality behind him. Uh, they don't have any backup forwards uh, as well, so he's not being put in a position to succeed. You know, as I watched him, yeah, you know, he's not amazing in terms of his rotations, but I thought his effort level has been relatively decent, uh, especially considering that you know he hadn't been a rotation player until this year and had that gap year when he was drafted, essentially. Uh, out of prep school so I, I you know was he ready for prime time this year no he, he wasn't especially with what they needed him to do on, on an actual good team like they didn't really need pick and roll scoring and isolation scoring uh, and lots of jumpers off the drill they needed somebody who would play a little bit more of a role and he's not capable of playing winning basketball right now but I, I certainly think there's a, a potential bright future for him probably can't give him a 
development grade, though, just because uh, he really didn't play at all last year. Yeah, I think that's fair. Let's go to Gary Trent Jr. This was his age 21 season. Eight points, two rebounds, about 20 minutes per game. Actually had eight starts for the Blazers. 12 PER, 56% true shooting on 15 usage. And remember, he had 38% true shooting last year as a rookie. And a a big part of why that improvement happened was Trent going from 24% on threes as a rookie to 39% this year. And that's more in line with what he did at Duke. At Duke, he was 40% from three and 88% from the line. Yeah, as a shooter, I think he did take steps forward. And he seemed like even at Duke, he was a little more comfortable working into the mid-range for shots. And that's not going to be his role on this team with CJ McCollum and Dame Lillard there. So I I thought he took steps forward in a way uh, as a a role player and just uh, being comfortable from three. Uh, I definitely, you know, just watching him, like you trust him to make open shots. Like he absolutely needs to be guarded out there. And he's got, uh, he seems to have gotten a little bit more athletic over the years. He actually was able to get up for some nice dunks going to the basket uh, to where, you know, I think he's uh, the guy that I kind of compare him to uh, in terms of athleticism and physical profile is Wes Matthews, like a little bit stronger, but probably really more of, you know, a six, five shooting guard type than a small forward. And I think like Wes Matthews to me, I mean, that Wes Matthews had a wonderful career. He got a max contract at one point. Um, you know, I, I don't, he doesn't have that type of worker mentality that Wes Matthews does, but I think like that would be to me the out, upside outcome for him. Uh, uh, anything else you want to say? I did a little more work on it on his defense. Yeah. If, if anything else comes to mind? Yeah, there you. is, and and that's when you look at his at, at Trent's shot profile. It was really concerning in summer league. I was basically, I I fixated on the idea that he thought he was something that he wasn't and was taking all these mid-range pull-ups and it was really pissing me off. But then when he slotted in on the Blazers this year, nope, more of the role-player shot profile. Spot-ups transition, a little bit of pick-and-roll, a little bit of ISO, and that's great. You know, it it is an important adjustment because so many of these players, I mean, almost everybody was the best player in their high school team. A lot of them were either the best or the, you know, like one of the best players in their college team. And very few of them can be that in the pros, even on a second unit. And so I'm, I was happy that Trent, that Gary Trent was able to tone that down. And I think that's his path to success in the league and the three-pointer falling. But even with that, those things still have to be at least capable defensively to really make it work. Yeah, and defensively, I really locked it in this. I, I was looking forward to doing that since we didn't didn't really get to see him against NBA competition in summer league. And, uh, you know, I think I would characterize him as decent, but not great. Um, you know, he's not going to really make plays as a help guy, which as if you're going to play the three on this team, which maybe he's miscast there, but uh, that's what he has to play. You know, you'd like to see more of an impact uh, making hustle plays off the ball. Um you know, I think he is an average athlete defensively and average length, but he is pretty strong and he's he's only going to get stronger. And that's definitely an asset. He looks better when he gets his body into guys uh, in space against quicker players. So he can struggle a, a little bit. And, you know, in terms of his motor, I think it can look decent when it's revved up. Uh, but it isn't always. And I, I think part of that even, you know, I just, on some of these possessions, I saw him look tired out there. And it, so where you can tell he's just kind of going through the motions and it's a little bit more fake hustle and he's kind of you know once he gets screened off it's not you know just really competing to get back into the play there'd be times where he's just sort of you know and then he's not really like in a stance in an athletic position as he's trying to do that he's just kind of jogging back in so other times he would look good uh but you know and again as a a 21 year old 
second season. This is his first high-level experience. That's not the end of the world. You know, I think he has the chance to be an adequate defender. You know, probably not your number one defensive option, but uh, someone who can at least uh, be part of a good defense. How about uh, Nasir Little? What do you think of him this year? Oh boy, uh, Little played about 12 minutes a game. Started five games for for the Blazers this year. 10 per, 51 true shooting on 14 usage, and it, the big reason why he fell to 25th in the draft was the jump shot. Jump shot was definitely concern in the pros. So he shot 27% from three at North Carolina, and then Little shot 24% on 4.9 threes per possessions in the pros this year though it is a small sample size just 14 of 59 and even if you are a good athlete even if you have positional size you have to if you can't make jump shots and and maybe he will eventually you have to be good at everything else and that includes effort have to be busting your ass in transition working hard on defense ideally playmaking through steals blocks and rebounds and little did not do enough of that in his rookie year yeah, that was one of the things that really concerned me in Summer League was that he wasn't doing those things. It was better, but still not where you're really seeing the impact. Like fewer than a block, fewer than a steal per 36 minutes. Did have 6% offensive rebounds. I'd like to see that maybe be a little bit higher. Um, you know, this is the Blazers are not a big running team. You know, maybe he could have looked better in transition, filling the lanes on a, a different team. But yeah, like just being with his athleticism, having his bread and butter being just playing harder than everyone else. I mean, that needs to be the basis of the game. Um, you know, and that's something he should be capable of doing. And he, he's not, again, just an unbelievable athlete, but certainly well above average solid length as well in particular i thought when he is guarding in isolation he can use that big wingspan as i think it's seven one off the top of my head to really bother shooters and surprise them a little bit like i, I like to see that uh, when guys try to get to a mid-ranger on him or, or something and it, he's able to contest well you know he's certainly jumpy he's gonna commit some fouls uh, on those plays uh, again being 19 and, and having the, the lack of high level experience um He's still, I'd like to see him improve as a finisher. You know, we haven't seen that much for him uh, in the half court. Only about an average NBA finisher, about 56% in the half court. 67% overall, but that's because uh, he, he's getting some in transition as well. But that number, again, needs to be higher. And I, I noted that in college as well, that I really thought that he finished at a level below his athleticism. Um, so I don't know what to make of little, like his jumper doesn't look broken. Would you, would you agree with that? I don't think, I don't think it, I don't think it does, but I, I also, I would need to see it go in more before I had any faith in it. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I, I, there's maybe that's just like a slight reason for optimism, but obviously, you know, if he's not going to get into the thirties and uh, shooting three pointers, like he's not going to have a career. Um, you know, and he spent a lot of time too playing the four, hanging out in the dunker spot, even on pick and rolls sometimes rather than as a shooter, cause he wasn't being respected. So that was, uh, I, I hoped to see a little bit more from him this year. Uh, despite the fact that I was like a little low on him, particularly after summer league, I thought he looked better than he looked in summer league, but that's, uh, again, not a particularly high bar to clear. So he's got a lot of work to do. Uh, and maybe this time during the shutdown, it could have helped him with his jumper a little bit. A couple guys we're not going to spend much time on. Wenyan Gabriel played 210 minutes between the Kings and the Blazers in his age 22 season. Moses Brown played only 33 minutes in his age 20 season. And then, but a little bit on Jalen Horde, who, uh, who also played uh, 103 minutes on the big club himself. 
Yeah, out of, out of Wake Forest, he's just he's got NBA athleticism. You know, there just aren't that many guys. You know, he's a combo forward. He shoots it even worse than Nasir Little does at this point in time. But just a guy just to keep an eye on a little bit because there just aren't that many guys in the G League who you know are, have can be combo forwards and actually have a plus NBA athleticism. We can finish up here with the Utah Jazz. We're already quite a bit into this. So we're not going to get to some of the guys who didn't really play that much. They have a horde of guys who played under 100 minutes this year. So we'll limit our analysis this time to Donovan Mitchell and Tony Bradley. Mitchell is an interesting one. You know, he, I mean, the raw numbers, 24 points a game, 4.2 assists, 4.4 rebounds, uh, over 30% usage. Now he's basically been at at that level even since he was a rookie. I think he was 29% as a a rookie uh you know there were some concerns with him leading this offense because it seemed like they especially early on it was a ton of mid-rangers and a lot of that was him on floaters and i think that teams kind of made the decision that the jazz had upgraded their shooting so they're going to stick with shooters a little bit more and try to play the pick and roll and make it two on two and you know mitchell i think was a little bit too eager for those type of shots uh, particularly from floater range i mean i think again this this year though probably wouldn't have been my pick uh, for the all-star team i i don't think and i also really wonder what he would look like on a different team i mean there there's two schools of thought one is at least up until this year well the jazz don't have anybody else to create so hey look they're pretty decent in offense and he's their main guy so uh you know maybe you should be giving him a lot of respect or you can say hey you know they have this really good system with quinn satter everyone gets to to run pick and rolls so they're really well coached they got a great role man with rudy gobert this year they had all these shooters you know would they look better with a, a different primary guy you know i don't really know the answer to that but i think he's t- again taken incremental steps forward up to 56 percent true shooting his first year uh, at uh, league average his three-pointer looks pretty good so i i do think he needs to get to the foul line a little bit more i think he he's got to get a little bit better as a passer and a little bit better uh putting pressure on the basket but you know i think he's he's on track to be what he's supposed to be i did think he's taken a little bit of a step back defensively from his early years now that he kind of doesn't have to earn his keep that way well what what i think of with with mitchell is there are times when a player has a, a strong rookie year where that just that's just boding well for where things are going, that they're just you strap a rocket to him and they go in. He is, it seems to me, has been more in the second camp, which is that he was effective as a rookie and has gotten better, but that it's it's more like incremental phased improvements off of what he already was rather than something truly transformational. And there's still there's still time for that to shift. But something that I want to uh, talk about a little bit is the the degree of difficulty. Like so he's at fifty six percent true shooting, but that is not nearly the same as a lower usage role player doing that. So Don Mitchell, 78% of his two pointers are unassisted and 40% of his threes basically. And so like when you look at it, effective catch and shoot player using synergy splits 1.3 points per possession as a catch and shoot guy that's that's great and then about a point per possession on jump shots off the dribble nothing wrong with that whatsoever it's just that he had because of the role that he's playing within the the jazz offense when you he's not this you know undeniable player in the way that you could say like somebody like kevin durant or steph curry or any number of these other guys that they are but he has been the best player on a on a pretty good offense this year and he's doing a reasonably effective job making shots that are more difficult than the average guy takes yeah absolutely and so you know what would you give him for development rating i think i'd be you know in the five or six range yeah i think i think a five i it's so weird that his 
best defensive moments were were in summer league his rookie year like i th- i thought you know with but a lot of times that happens with somebody who takes on a big offensive role they just don't have the juice and i would love to see mitchell become more of a defensive force but that also might be asking too much and you know it it, it it happens all the time, and the, a lot of the time, you know, the, there are examples of guys with great physical tools don't become good defenders because they have to put their their energies elsewhere. And I think that's kind of the case for Mitchell. Tony Bradley surprisingly emerged into a role as the backup center. Uh, Ed Davis got hurt and then was not able to get his job back. Uh, and uh, Bradley actually played somewhat competently. Uh, we were definitely worried about that, but uh, extremely efficient. I think he had the highest offensive rebound rate in the whole NBA, 19% offensive rebounds. And, you know, going back to North Carolina, he was an unbelievable rebounder Uh, and not too shabby on the defensive glass either, but he's really just incredible uh, as a defensive or as an offensive rebounder, I should say, Um, you know, overall, uh, the efficiency numbers uh, were fantastic. Uh, Defensively, how did things look for him? Uh, definitely some positive signs. It's one of the stats that's on on the NBA's page is is how well a player defends or how well how how well an opponent shoots when a player is defending shots around the rim. Tony Bradley opponents shot a little bit under fifty five percent. That's pretty good. You know, it's not amazing. It's not like Rudy Gobert Rudy, his level where it's about fifty percent. But players around that fifty five range: Nerlens Noel, Jaron Jackson Jr., Mitchell Robinson, Gorgie Jang. Not n- not particularly slouches there. No, not players you would consider stars. Um. And with with Bradley, I think something that's so that's so interesting is yes, you're playing. Remember what Utah's center rotation, the front court rotation, was last year. The last couple of years, he played 65 minutes combined his first two years, and then played 535 minutes before the hiatus this year. Yeah, and I was not a Tony Bradley believer. I think he's gotten a little bit quicker. I think he's had more of an impact around the basket than I thought he would. He might have even grown a little bit, actually. He looks a little bit bigger than he, he did when he, when he came out. Um, you know, he's still below average quickness for an NBA center. Uh, you know, I think it is if you got into the playoffs uh, against a, a good team, I'm not sure how he would look at defending pick and roll uh, against guards who can really shoot it. Um, but I definitely, I mean, I thought you, even seeing him in summer league recently, you know, I thought that he really just didn't have a path and he's done a good enough job of improving his athleticism and getting better at, to become passable at some of the defensive stuff. And then his finishing and explosion around the rim has improved. You know, they've always touted his second jump there, but you know, he's gotten to the point where he can be acceptable uh, on both ends and the offensive rebounding is in particular something that opponents have to be aware of so i'm uh i think i'd be very pleased with, with him you know i'd probably have to give him like a nine in terms of his development because he really just didn't look like he was going to be a contributor at all at this time last year yeah absolutely and bradley you know beat 25 percent defensive rebounds you brought up his offense rebounding but 25 percent there four yeah. percent block rate totally happy with that so yeah i mean i don't see him as a you know a starter of the future at the center position and backup centers are among the more over supplied and in some ways under demanded players in the league but still good to have one for sure and i'm not gonna you know when a player improves as much as bradley has given the small sample we had before this year i'm excited to see where it goes okay we've got a little time for some news mostly bubble related i mean i think where we can start 
is just the good news. I haven't checked the news in the past hour since we've been recording, but uh, no positive coronavirus tests from inside the bubble as of now. I think that's uh, something that you could be pretty happy about. I mean, we've it's now been a couple of days since uh, teams arrived. They were supposed to quarantine for up to 48 hours. Uh, each player needed to have two negative coronavirus tests after arriving to begin to participate in team activities. But it, in fact, they have. It's good to see like the Utah Jazz practice today. A couple other teams uh, practice today. So that was good to actually see like NBA players playing together. I don't think that they, they may not be doing five on five yet, but I think they are no longer adhering to social distancing. Again, I will say this. I think that the either a pre-quarantine period before they arrived or a little bit more time after they got there, you know, this thing is not ironclad. I would have wished that they had stayed in quarantine another couple of days, but obviously nobody wanted to do that. So they are beginning team activities. There is a chance that someone could have picked up an infection just before they arrived uh, in Orlando and that they wouldn't have tested positive yet. Like they're, that's, a, that's a concern. I wish they'd done it differently, but hopefully it's not going to come back to bite them. These are still pretty strict. Uh, but, you know, we've seen issues with uh, MLS uh, and their procedures where a couple of teams uh, had to be sent home from basically infections that were brought into the bubble. We're also seeing some players like Kawhi Leonard, James Harden, Russell Westbrook are not going with their team so that just does worry me a little bit because that's just more time for them to potentially pick up an infection from outside of the bubble i'm not sure what the reasons are i don't want to speculate on that uh but it is interesting that of course that uh you know it's three all-stars who aren't coming so you speculate that perhaps that has something to do with uh the fact that they're all-stars and they just didn't feel like coming into the bubble yet especially because they're probably those they're on good teams they're not gonna be here for a while well uh what else we got here yeah speaking of all-stars not coming into the bubble one who's gonna stay outside the bubble for longer is bradley beal beal will join davin Bertans as the two best wizards this year. I, I thought he's still going to actually go. Yeah, though. I guess you're right. Uh, it just felt like such a nice <laughs> But he's just going to not play. It felt like such a nice uh, A shoulder a shoulder issue is what was uh was cited and he, and he was in fact on the injury report with shoulder issues uh, in uh during the season um you know that's uh perhaps he tried to ramp back up and it just didn't work out uh but uh, you know, you, you never know with that, but it, I guess, I mean, he's still going to go, which is, is kind of interesting. Uh, who knows? Maybe if they make the playoffs, uh, but I mean that with him not playing, Bertans not playing. And then with the Nets, DeAndre Jordan, uh, already due to coronavirus is not going and Spencer Dinwiddie wanted to play, but had symptoms. And, uh, eventually uh, he and the team came to the decision that it wasn't a good idea. And so he is going to be out as well. So, uh, Jamal Crawford starting point guard for the Nets. I mean, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, Crawford and, and Carousel Vert are going to have all of the opportunities they can get. Jamal Crawford um, has been, you know, is already is already 40 and has been out of the league now for, for a little while, but is going to be on the nets inside the bubble. And to... Uh, I mean, this is the team for him to yes. be on, right? Like, they need they shot no, creation in the They've got one guy who can create on this team. Right. And so we'll we'll get to see what Crawford has. It's it's a great opportunity for him. And if he if he wants to continue playing in the NBA, then he's going to get a showcase for at least eight games. But it's probably going to be more because I expect that they will make it in over the Wizards. And would I rather have the Bucks have a bye than have to play the Nets the Nets four times? Yeah, probably. But that's just the way it is. Um, dude, I got to tell you something. I'm actually like kind of happy about this because there's going to be this. It's not the playoffs. The first round of the playoffs. It's not going to be like normal is going to be four games every single day and so to just like not have to talk about that series 
is actually going to be like a pretty nice break. Like we're going to be exhausted. Well, I will be. You you never get tired, but I'll be tired <laughs> <laughs> from watching watching four games a day and then casting them and podcasting about them. Uh, so I'm I'm uh, I'm okay with just taking the approach of like I'm only going to talk about games in that series if they end up being close. And in, in case the Nets wanted to cater further to a very specific flavor of basketball fan, they also signed Michael Beasley, who will, who will be in the bubble for them, but he has to serve a five-game suspension first, so he will then only be available for the last three seeding games and theoretically any post-seeding games, meaning playoffs or the uh, the little elimination thing, should the Nets have to be in that. And then they also signed um, they signed Dante Hall as well, not the kick returner, the University of... I believe University of Virginia player. Yeah, he's actually a, a, a kind of undersized, big dunker type. Uh, John Hollinger talked about him as one of the better free agents available, and he's going to play. I mean, they have no other centers. Nick Claxton is out. DeAndre Jordan is out. So it's basically Jared Allen. And so, I mean, Dante Hall's going to be their backup center. Uh, so it's a great opportunity. Oh, correction. Dante Hall went to Alabama, not UVA. Wow. Hollinger was actually pumping up someone who didn't go to UVA. I know. That's why I assumed. <laughs> <sighs> All right, I, I think we can uh, wrap it here. Thanks so much uh, for listening. And uh, we should be back on Sunday night for you with uh, taking a look at the Atlantic division and their young players. Talk to you all then.